invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to the Song of Solomon, the Song of Solomon, which you'll find just before the large portion in your Bible, that is the prophecy of Isaiah. <coughs> Song of Solomon, chapter 6, tremendous singing this morning, tremendous themes for our hearts as we come to the Lord's table. Know that Christ by His sufferings has emptied the cup that we deserve for our sins. It was noted by one of our ministers in my presence once, Reverend Gregory McCammon. I'm not sure if any of you really are that familiar with Reverend McCammon, but he noted the, the error, at least maybe not so much as an error, but as an oversight that's in that hymn, that the cup is empty now for me. And he said, no, it's not. He said, the cup is full, but it's rather than filled with the wrath of God, it's filled with the blessings that we have in Christ. And indeed, our cup runneth over, does it not? What Christ has done for us. He has not left for us merely the absence of the wrath of God, but the favor of Almighty God in its place. We are a favored, we are a blessed people. So Song of Solomon chapter 6 is where we are this morning. We have, for those that aren't regularly with us, when we come to the Lord's table month by month, it has been largely our practice for over two years now to turn to the Song of Solomon. So we are now in chapter 6. It helps us. This book is extremely edifying in contemplating what we have in Christ as we come to the table of our Lord. So we're going to read from verse 1 again and give consideration of just one verse that has not normally been our practice, but it will be the case this morning as we will turn our attention to verse number 10. Song of Solomon chapter 6, let's Read from verse 1, however. Whether as thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women, whether as thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee. My beloved has gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barren among them. As a piece of a pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? Amen. May the Lord give us understanding in His Word this morning. Let's still our hearts Seek His face again for His help 
as we look to him and his word. God, thou hast met with us already this morning. Our eyes already have been taken to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We're thankful, however, that that is not just a general truth that is stated, but a personal experience that has been applied for many here this morning. They have beheld the Lamb of God, and He has taken away their sins. How we bless Thee for what we have in Him. And may every child of God be refreshed in soul in the contemplation of Thine infallible Word. Thou hast given Thy Scripture. Every Word of God is pure. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable. We pray, God in heaven, that Thou wilt condescend and give us eyes to see, to behold wondrous things out of Thy law, to consider Christ and all of His glory, and to muse upon our position in Him as He looks upon and reflects His thoughts towards His people. O God, come, do meet with us in Thy Word around the table. May the Holy Ghost descend. May sin be put away. May our hearts be lifted up before Thee that we might see something of the beauty of our Lord Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. It is the duty of men to speak in the highest possible terms concerning their wives. The practice of disparaging wives for cheap laughs may get those cheap laughs, but it is not an honorable practice. It should not be found in the church. That is not to say that we can't at times exercise a measure of humor. I think there's a place for a little humor here and there, but we must be very careful that we do not allow our language and our desire to be seen as funny or humorous to be destructive in reflecting what it is we ought to think concerning our spouses. The same, of course, goes for wives. For many, the tongue of a wife has been destructive in ways towards her husband. And we ought to be careful, therefore, in how we treat one another, how we speak of one another, what our children hear and observe, and the memories we implant in their minds as we relate to each other. This act of speaking unwisely in this way, this kind of folly is really the practice of folly for foolish people. It is not for those that have been made wise, for those that have been brought into Christ, for those that have a new way of looking at marriage and looking at what they have or are meant to possess in relation to the love that they have for their wives and their wives for their husbands. It is, of course, a gospel picture. For those of you who were here this morning in our Sunday school, you're already aware of that. Some of that already has been put before us. And it's so true. And in Solomon's greatest song, we find nothing of this effort to try and be funny. We have language that is most serious, and indeed language that seems almost at times to be exaggerated because the love shared is inexplicable. It is inexplicable. It seems as if language is being stretched beyond its bounds 
The effort, yes, it is in the literary device of poetry, largely. It is in a song, so there is a different literary device that certainly is at play, which in some ways makes it more difficult for us to fully understand all of the themes and all of the details that is presented before us in this book. But nonetheless, nonetheless, there is no getting away, there's no avoiding, there's no missing the emphasis of love that is expressed between the bridegroom and the bride. Christ loves His church. And I was struck in preparing for this morning by verse 10. As we come to that text, we've gotten as far as the end of verse 9, so we naturally come to verse 10, and we're just going to pause over this text as it really hit me, the language that is being used that brings us to consider what we see in our skies and such things used to describe the, the beauty of the bride. Christ here draws our minds to consider the morning, the sun, the moon, and even, in a certain fashion, we may consider in a particular way, which we'll get to, what it means to be terrible as an army with banners. It is clear that Christ loves His church. That's how we see the purpose of the Song of Solomon. We, we don't see this just as... Emmanuel, to say, here husbands, here's how to love your wife. And here wives, here's how to reverence your husbands. It does communicate that. There's no, no getting away from that because Paul pulls that together for us in Ephesians chapter 5. He makes it plain that what we see in the relationship between Christ and His church isn't something that's just to be kind of known and to be reflected purely in that relationship, but is also to be imbibed by husbands and wives in the respective roles of the relationship. So it does communicate something to us. When we see Christ speak of the bride in the fashion that He does, it tells husbands what is their duty. By implication, it is saying something of the manner of the love that is to exist, that is to be prayed for, that is to be sought and practiced, and the kind of things contrary to it that ought to be repented of. So we are taught. We are taught. There's no getting around it. But my emphasis has not been going through this book, kind of hammering you every month with things that you need to imbibe into your marriage and where you're failing and so on. It has the application. Don't miss it. But we're coming to the table of the Lord. Our purpose, and I think it is the primary purpose for why the Spirit of God gave us this book, I think that redemptive theme must not be missed. These things are written for us predominantly to teach us matters relating to redemption. But from that, of course, there are the practical things. But when we come to the table of the Lord, our minds are being drawn to this relationship that exists. A relationship that exists between every believer and their Christ. You're loved by Christ. You're loved by Christ. You're loved by Him in ways that you haven't even fully explored. In ways that constantly exceed the bounds of your ability to comprehend in ways that your entire eternity will not be able to fully fathom. I've mentioned that on occasion. I believe eternity will be, for the child of God, constant learning. That the well of Christ will never run dry. And we will be learning of Him and His love 
his person, his work, all that he has done for us, we'll be constantly gleaning from him. Think of it. Think of those of you who have been on the road, learning, reading your Bibles for 40 years, 50 years, studying the gospel, reading good books, reading the commentaries, sitting under solid preaching, imbibing and filling in your heart all those truths that relate to what Christ has done. And after 40, 50 years, you're only scraping the surface. You'll spend eternity drinking from Christ. And you'll never be dissatisfied. It's amazing. Every, every morning, every morning you will take of Him. You will feed on Him. You will consider Him and sing of Him and praise Him. But the Christian, as he speaks in this portion, verse 10, that it is the Lord, he is speaking as we see him as the bridegroom, speaking of his church. He is likening the Christian, likening the church to the luminaries that lighten man's habitation. Who is she is how it begins. The question, language like this has been found already in chapter 3, verse 6, where it uses similar language, similar Question, who is this that cometh out of the wilderness? And also in chapter 8, verse 5, who is this? But here it is, who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? And I want to note a number of things before we consider the Lord at this table this morning as we are looking at the church's heavenly beauty. The church's heavenly beauty. And note with me, first of all, the church is like a new dawn. The church is like a new dawn. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning? The language is designed to help us consider that experience, that, that experience we have every morning. Well, I guess we don't all have it every morning. Sometimes we miss it. That we lie in sufficiently that we're pretty much the sun is at whatever height it's at, and you've, you've missed the dawn. Well, I was up this morning to see, not to see the sun, but as the sun was rising, I can't see it from where I am, but the sun, I was there for the dawn, and just meditating afresh on this text in preparation for this morning, and thinking about just how the church is like the new dawn. First of all, it reminds us of salvation. The dawn, of course, comes on the heels of the night, and reminds us of the history of every individual member of the church, every Christian has a testimony, has a history of being in darkness. You were not born into the light. You're not born saved. You're not born knowing your Redeemer and walking in such a fashion that you're aware of all of His redemptive work and His love for you. You're born a sinner. You're born unclean. You're born cut off from God, born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Your history, therefore, your history is one of the darkness. And so the church, for every member of the church, there is this experience that she comes out of the darkness into a dawn. The salvation that is provided for her in Christ brings her into a new day. Now, of course, this is not to say that the Christian life doesn't have its dark periods that we come into a dawn and, and we never see the darkness ever again. That's, that's not the case. There is a certain form of darkness that we go through. And I've mentioned this recently. I quoted Isaiah 50 verse 10 recently. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. The child of God who fears God, trusts God, can have his dark seasons. 
You think of what's recorded also in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 2. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. That's an awful experience. And, and you're, you're here this morning and you can testify. Many of you can testify to such experiences. Maybe you're even in it. You're in a darkness. It's another day. It's another Lord's Day. And you look around you, you imagine everyone else, of course, is just entering into the Lord's Day with fresh senses of the Lord's love and the brightness of His presence and the cheeriness of His counsel. But I hazard a guess there are quite a number of you that are here this morning and you don't feel much of the brightness that you have once enjoyed. And there are many reasons for that. Sometimes it's self-inflicted. Sometimes there are just things we cannot learn without being in the darkness. But even for those of you in the darkest place this morning, is it not true that still your experience is one of having brought, being brought into the dawn of life and light? Could you not get up here today and testify of the Lord's goodness, even to the very point where you find yourself this morning? And though the darkness be felt, and though the fears be many, you could still testify, He has saved me, He has kept me, and I'm so thankful that my sins, which were many, have all been washed away. This is, this is the Christian experience. Turn for a moment to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I will not read too much here, just from verse 9. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Speaking to the believing body, the church of Jesus Christ, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is your testimony, is it not? Now Peter writes to, to, to a people that are under great persecution and affliction, and, and much of his meditation will be directed to them to deal with the afflictions. Or we might just say the darkness. How to deal with the darkness. But it doesn't take away the new dawn. The new dawn. This is the church's experience. She is one that looketh forth as the morning. Which reminds us of our salvation. And I use that word salvation in the narrow sense. The point of regeneration. 
a time when you're brought to Christ, at whatever point in time in your life that took place. It must take place in time. It must take place in time. There must be an experience of salvation in time. There ought not to be anyone here who says that I was just born into it. I've always been saved. You may not be able to pinpoint the precise time or know all the details. I'm aware of the mystery that there can be at times for some in knowing precisely when regeneration took place in the heart by the Spirit. But every single one would agree that there must be a time in which we are regenerated by the Spirit of God and brought from nature's darkness into the light of the glorious gospel where it becomes ours. And we know it, not just by the hearing of the ear, but we say with Job, now mine eye seeth thee. But it also reminds us of sanctification. It reminds us of sanctification. The dawn of the morning is not static, as you're well aware. Unlike the middle of the day, in which the changes of light can, well, you know, an hour can pass and you don't really notice any change in the light, you look outside in the dawn and and five minutes you can see the difference. You can see the light coming. There's these constant, gradual changes that are taking place in the dawn. There's a sense of progression. There's a sense of something happening out there. If you were to look out and just see it, if you're up early enough just to, to observe what, what goes on, you, you just see this progression constantly. And this, of course, reminds us of the Christian life as well. The dawn of the morning comes and changes everything and begins to light up all the shadows. Never was I more glad of the providence of God, at least in, in one particular practical aspect, I, I maybe don't want to overstate it, but we were vacationing, and this was like my fifth or sixth time of being in America, in California, visiting family, and I finally decided, look, we're, we, we have to, we ha- I have to see the Grand Canyon. Now, at, at that time, of course, I had no plans to ever be in North America. That was never in the picture, in the frame. So any time I was in, in America was to visit family. So I'm like, my fifth time here, and I still haven't seen the Grand Canyon. I need to see the Grand Canyon. So we planned a road trip this time, take a week out of the time we were spending with family and, and drive around. And of course, you know, there were family members saying to me, cousins that were saying, you're going to see the Grand Canyon in July? Are you mad? You know, the, you know we, we, Lois was, well, she was being carried still. She was uh, very small, maybe just over a year or so at that time. And they thought it was crazy to go into the middle of the desert in the July heat. But anyway, I thought, look, we've planned this. This is what we're going to do. Well, anyway, we passed by the Hoover Dam, made our way out to Williams to go out there. And and as we're driving out there, I mean, just electric storms. I mean, lightning, thunder, the whole works that was coming on. And I thought, I don't believe this. I don't believe there are going to be thunderstorms while we're out this way. And when we got to our place where we were staying in Williams, I looked up the weather and sure enough, from, from, 1, from 1 p.m. through the rest of the day, or at least for a good part of the day, there were going to be thunderstorms. I thought, I don't believe this. I said, well, here's the plan. We're going to get up at 3, we'll leave at 4, we'll be there at 5, and we'll just enjoy from 5 to noon or 1 o'clock what we can enjoy. Now, that was not the initial plan. We would probably would have done what everyone else did and arrive in there 8 or 9 o'clock. But because I looked at the weather, I thought, no, I'm going to maximize my experience here and we'll be 
up at three and out the door at four. So that's what we did. Managed to save ourselves 20 bucks because the little guy who takes the $20 from you wasn't even in his post by the time we were driving in. Drove right up and parked like as close as you could get to one of the, the best viewing areas that was there. And the wonder of it, the reason I'm bringing it up was no one had ever told me, no one had ever said to me how the canyon changes as the light rises over the canyon, as the sun rises over it. I remember just the marvel of it. When it came to noon, it was just, just a big hole, almost. I mean, not that it didn't have its own particular beauty, but the reds and the oranges and the colors that changed continually in those morning hours, constantly changing before your very eyes, was something to behold. Well, that's the Christian life. There's a dawn, and the sun rises, and there's a change that takes place in the Christian life, changing all the time. We are called, Colossians 3 verse 5, to mortify our members. We are, again, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, to put off the old man with his deeds, put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We are called upon to recognize what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 13. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. We are not static. So as the light changes, especially in those morning hours, so it is for the Christian life. There's a constant change and a constant progression that is going on. Turn for a moment to Isaiah 58. Isaiah chapter 58. We'll read from verse 1. Let's read a few verses here. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou pride not thyself from thine own flesh? This, this is the call. 
They're engaging in all the religious externals. They're doing everything they think that God calls them to do. And they're fasting and having their days of atonement and all the rest of it. They're doing all of that. But day to day, the regular pattern of their lives is neglecting those things that God calls them to pay attention to. So God finally, in this way, makes it clear to them Basically saying, you need to change, you need a heart change. You can come and do the fasts, but, but there's a hungry man right there, and you have more and an abundance to help, but you just, you just ignore him. You're like the rich man who steps over Lazarus every day to go to the synagogue. You have no consideration, no, no, no sympathy, no, no hearts for people. So he calls them to this. True change of heart, where love dominates. Verse 8 then says, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Yes, thy light break forth as the morning. See, the, the nations around were not seeing the light of Israel, they weren't seeing it. They were seeing all the religious activity, but they had their religious activity. They they had their sacrifices, and they had their gods, and they had their fasts, and they had all of that. And Israel was just like the rest of them, exactly the same. The Lord has set them to be a light to the nations around, that they would deal differently in the fundamental aspects of human existence. So we are, we are to be a sanctified people. And that's, that's when you see the progression of the dawn, the light shining, rising up in our hearts. It also reminds us of singing. Does not the dawn remind us of singing? I put this in this morning because I, it was not in my thoughts earlier. Because as I sat there pondering over this text and thinking as the sun was rising over the earth and me sitting there musing on this text, what could I hear? But the birds sing. Oh, how loudly they were singing this morning. How happy they were. It was as if the Lord had given us the birds to teach us our, our duty every morning. You wake up and you hear them in, in full song, first thing in the morning. <laughs> Sometimes we get up and it takes us a, a few hours and a couple of coffees to get the full song in the morning. But not the birds, not the birds. And so the psalmist says, Psalm 59, verse 16, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning, for thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Yes, yes, so he has had days of trouble and difficulty and hardship. And so every morning he remembers and he, he rises to a new day with a song, just like the birds. Yes, this is the church, the church the church awakens every day to sing to the Lord. They are as the new dawn. It reminds us also of soaring. Who is she that looketh forth? That is to say, who is she that looks down? That's the sense of it. That's the sense of, of, of how it could be translated. Who is she that looketh down? She, she is elevated. She is, she is rising and she looks down. And this, again, is the Christian because when you get saved... When the Lord calls you to Himself, all of a sudden you begin to rise up. 
Is that not the depiction that David gives for us that many of us use that reflect our own salvation? He brought me up out of the Mary pit, out, out of the clay, and, and, and set me up upon a rock. And we kind of see ourselves in that depiction of, of, of being in the pit and in the Mary clay. But then Christ came and we were set upon a rock and established our goings. And He gave us a new song in our mouth, even praise unto our God. And so there's this, this elevation, there's this deliverance. It says you're walking without Christ. You're like a man walking around in a little pit. But it's all you've ever known. You think it's wonderful. You actually set up your little home there in the pit. And you have your little things, your hobbies and your work. And you try to make a living all there in the pit. That's all you know. That's all you know. Then Christ comes. And you're set upon a rock and you're outside. And all of a sudden you begin to see the world. Everything changes. Your whole perspective changes on life when you have Christ in the heart. Yes, that's what the Christian is, like a new dawn. She, she rises forth. You, Christian, you rise up and you look down. Not, not in a condescending way. Don't get me wrong. You're not rising up so you can look down your nose at the rest of the world. That's not it. But it's that you rise up so that you get a proper perspective on life. Yes, you begin to read the Word. And what does that do to your heart? You begin to see life as God would have you see it. You begin to interpret life not by your feelings and emotions and the fluctuating circumstances of life, but as God sees it, and you remember that He never changes. And so your whole, your whole perspective on life changes, does it not? Does it not? So you can have, you can have as a Christian way more hardships than you ever had as an unbeliever. But you have far more peace you ever had as an unbeliever any even greater hardships as a Christian. Yes, because love never fails, the Christian is able to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Christian, you are as a new dawn. Whatever is breaking your heart, whatever is causing the ache of soul today, rise a little higher. Read the Word. Get His promises into your soul. See things as the Lord sees them. Don't reject. You're well enough taught in this place that you know, you know. You know how to respond. The question is, Will you respond as the Lord would have you respond? As I often put it in the dichotomy, you're either responding in faith or in frustration to everything that comes before you. You're either believing or you're not believing and frustrated by what you're dealing with as if the Lord's made a mistake in your circumstances. So, we soar, we ought to soar, yes. This is what the text is saying. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning? But secondly, the church is like the evening moon. She is like the evening moon. Not just a new dawn, but like the evening moon. Fair as the moon. Or beautiful as the moon. So we think of two things. First, it is a reflected beauty. It is a reflected beauty. 
The beauty of the moon is a reflected beauty. In and of itself, it is not spectacular. It's just another rock in amidst suspended in space. It doesn't really have a whole lot of beauty to it. But oh, to see it as we see it down here. When the sun hits it and there's a full reflection on the face of that moon coming down upon this earth. It is beautiful. It is fair. But as we have noted on other occasions, the Lord appreciates the reflected beauty of His church. He doesn't have a problem with the fact that the beauty you reflect is, is His beauty. The beauty that you're endeavoring to display and show to the world. You don't want it to be something wonderful about you. The Christian is brought to a point where, no, he must increase, I must decrease. It is about him. Oh, that the world would be seen by him, the world would see him and not me. Like John the Baptist who said those words that I just quoted a moment ago. Behold the Lamb of God, don't look at me. I'm not the one. It's not me, I'm not even worthy to to tie his, his shoes. Behold the Lamb. Look there. Even to be mistaken as the Messiah was a great honor for John, but it was just a reflected beauty. Did not Moses pray in the oldest of all Psalms we have in our Bible, Psalm 90, verse 17, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us? It's a good prayer. That's what the nations need to see. That's what the unbeliever needs to see. The beauty of the Lord our God. But there's also a practical beauty. There's a practical beauty. Amidst the darkness of this world, the light of Christians is essential, utterly essential. The most ordinary Christian plays an essential part in God's purpose. Otherwise, Christ would have taken them to be with himself. They're still here. He has some distinct purpose for them. And so they have, amidst maybe the peculiarities of why he has them remaining on this earth, or any of us remaining on this earth, he has, we think of this, this, this fairness, this beauty of the moon, it is a practical beauty. It's like a full moon in the night. Like we don't comment on the moon when we don't see it, especially when it's in its full radiant glory that we comment on it. It stands out. And if you were in such a condition where you had no flashlight and no alternative light, you would be very dependent on it. And you see the practical nature of it. And so it is, so it is for the Christian, so it is for the church. You, Christian, are needed. You are needed. <laughs> if you weren't, as I've said already, why be here? Why would the Lord just keep you here, carrying on? No, no, you, you, you're needed. Look at the state of America. Look at the state of Greenville. Maybe look at the state of your place of employment. It needs you. It needs you to reflect light amidst the darkness. It needs you to be at your best for God. It needs you to be as Christ-like as the Spirit of God might enable you. It needs that. Your light has a practical aspect that makes it utterly necessary that it may be said of you, you're fair as the moon. It is also a dominant beauty, isn't it? The moon in her full splendor is the dominant presence in the night. You can't see anything without 
any luminary, without any light. But, but when the moon shines, though it shines on our way, it, it is really drawing attention to itself in one sense. It is that. It is the dominant presence in the night. Not that Christians should draw attention to themselves, but that they are the dominant influence in that context, aren't they? And the, and the church is as well. I know, I know. <laughs> the leadership of this land, by and large, has little consideration of the church of Jesus Christ. And we're the offscarring of all things. And especially those real Bible believers, those who take the Bible seriously. We're not really interested in them. We don't give them much attention. We don't care about them. But, but beloved, the dominant beauty in this world, imagine the church wasn't here. Imagine there was none of God's people. Go to lands where there is hardly any presence of the church. Go and see the condition. Go and see the oppression. It actually absolutely boggles my mind. Just as recently as yesterday, doing outreach on the street to hear people talk about oppression here. Now, listen, I'm not saying there isn't oppression in America. I'm not saying that. There's oppression everywhere. Down the street, there'll be oppression somewhere in some home, some place, place of employment. Oppression's everywhere. But the talk as if the, the, the pinnacle of oppression is America. Like, Get out of, like, what are you thinking? You have no understanding. You're, 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 what, what? There has to be an agenda behind thinking like that because it isn't based in real life. Go to the world. See how people live. See how they're held and see at the bottom of it so often, so often is the rejection of the gospel. dominant beauty in this fallen world is the church. Does that mean she is perfect? Far from it. She has wheat and tares. Jesus said that. There's coming a day of harvest where he's, he's going to sort it all out. But even, even as a mixed multitude, she is still, she is still the pillar and the ground of the truth. That's her mandate. Yes, that's her mandate. Let me just underscore this. And this is not to be disparaging. For the sake of being disparaging, this is, this is so you get it. This is so your conscience is sensitive to the kind of garbage that is going on today and you say, no, I want none of that. There are churches today that have set aside their services or they have altered their morning service to have, well, we're, we're, we're having a picnic tomorrow. We're thankful for our independence. We're having a picnic, using it as a, as a holiday that has been given and we embrace it and have fellowship together and it's all fine and good, even for this British citizen. <laughs> I can bring myself to appreciate it. But the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. What truth? Well, in one sense, all truth. But what specific truth? Christ. The gospel. Who God is and what He has done through His Son. These, these are the essential things. And, and what, what's being communicated in some places. I mean, these are... I'm not talking here about places that disregard the Bible. I'm talking about places that claim to be about the book. And they 
change their morning service and they have no evening service. And I'm thinking, what are you saying? What are you saying? What are you communicating? Whether implicitly or explicitly, what are you saying? That America's independence is more important or in some way we set aside on one Lord's Day, the day, the day that God Almighty called for us to remember the first creation and the means by which we might enjoy the second creation, the creation of ourselves in Him. One day in seven, just to have your mind on this. And whenever other national holidays rise and fall and come with a changing calendar, just, just this one day. This is my day. Always my day. My truth. Consider that. Ponder that. Keep your heart on that. Everything else can move, but not, but not that. What are we telling our children? That deliverance from the tyranny of Britain is greater than the deliverance of the tyranny of Satan and sin? What's being communicated? My heart breaks. My heart breaks because are we not praying so hard that God would spare the coming generation and send a revival and the very places that are meant to be pictures of beauty and truth are, are, are letting go, are doing things that 50 or 100 years ago, you, if you brought it up in a committee meeting, you'd be kicked off. You wouldn't last at five minutes. Wind your neck in, brother. Or get out. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't entertain it for a second. My heart bleeds. We are the dominant beauty. We are the moon. We, the world is looking for truth, real truth. <laughs> and it isn't July 4th. It is, it is Christ. It is that which spans the rise and fall of empires. It does. It's the same truth we turn people to, whether it's the first century or the 21st century. That, that, that's the message. And if, if she starts to dull her message, she starts to dull her brightness and her beauty. No, no, beloved, let's not, let us not entertain this. Let's not, let us hold fast. Let us be fair as the moon. Amidst the darkness of this world, let us be fair as the moon. Thirdly, the church is like the daytime sun. Very quickly. Clear as the sun. Like the sun, she brings warmth. The world is cold. It is. Has no real love for others, except those that love them back. We're called to love our enemies. To love the unlovely. Our warmth then is... Not to be altered by the coldness of others. When they're cold to us, we, we bring the full, radiant power of Christ's love through us to love them still. Enemies, employers, spouses, whomever. We bring warmth. It's a good prayer, isn't it? Lord, help me to bring warmth into this cold world. The warmth of your presence, the warmth, the warmth of Christ. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> We're like Peter. He was meant to be near, right near where Christ was. That's what he said he would do. He said he was willing to die. <laughs> That's what it took. Instead of being near the warmth of Christ, he went to where the world was gathered together, had a little fire. And he stood there. And he could warm his body, but he couldn't warm his soul. Like the sun, she not only brings warmth, she brings guidance. As I've said already, you know, the sun, we use the sun to guide us. Not so much these days, but have done in the past. And if we had nothing else, if we had none of the normal modern technology that we have in these days, we could still use it to guide us. And so it is for the church. In the darkest, most oppressive places on earth, you will find there is not a church or very little presence of God's people. Look at the cities of this land, even as a little microcosm of it. Look at the cities of America. Talked to a young man yesterday, downtown Greenville. He's probably in his mid to late 20s. He's from Portland, Oregon. Visiting Greenville. They began, I didn't invite it, he just began to say, Portland's in a mess. Total mess. He began to say the mess that the city's in. The cities where the church is weakest are the cities that are darkest. Fourthly, the church then is like the night stars. And this is where I cannot be dogmatic, but in reflection of verse 10, terrible as an army with banners, and I've already dealt with that back in verse 4, terrible as an army with banners, you see at the end of verse 4. I can't be dogmatic about this, but in dealing with, with the dawn and the moon and the sun, and I did wonder, I wonder if, if there's a sense in which this, this host, this army isn't something else. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 10, you will see in verse 10, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. And that's what we have for banners. That's the same word. Standard bearer, banner, terrible as an army with banners, or or as awe-inspiring as a host that is chiefest. Or, as one lexicon puts it, the idea also gives the sense of not just banners and chiefest, but has the idea of brightness. And I, I say I cannot be dogmatic, but I wonder if the host that is in mind is in one sense a reflection of the host of the stars, the brightness of the stars. I can't say for sure. The language is strange and it's not the only place in the Song of Solomon where that is the case. But I wondered if, if that was what was in mind. But whether it is or not, it doesn't really matter. It's not really the all-important thing because it's 
simile, as likening something. We've already dealt with verse 4. It is a depiction of the church as a multitude, an innumerable multitude. Now, if it is the stars, then we can bring in and draw from Abraham. And what the Lord said to Abraham, that your seed will be as the stars of the heaven for multitude. And so you wonder, you wonder, well, how many? How many? So it's innumerable. It's a sand. It's a sea. And, and this, this is the church. The church is an innumerable multitude of individuals from all quarters of the globe gathered in as, as an army, as a host. Like the stars of heaven, they, 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 they come before the world. And they have their time, each person in their particular season, God using them to bring glory to His name. But their purpose, their purpose is, is awe-inspiring. They have a, a terribleness about them. And this child of God is where you're to recognize you're not a defeated individual. You're, you're on the winning side. Christ has purchased victory for you. And you're utterly essential in this world. You're, you're leading the way or you're in part in, a, in an army that is leading in this world with Christ at the helm, conquering for His glory, by His Word and by His Spirit, changing lives. Now, it's not impressive. The world doesn't see it as impressive. And the problem is we see it almost like the carnal men see it. It's not impressive. It's not impressive. You're sitting here worshiping Him, singing songs. But if you could see your songs, if we could see your songs as, as the songs of army and victory, I mean, are they not? What, 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 what hymns do we have that are full of defeat? If they're there, they need to be deleted. They have no business being in the hymnal. Because the Christian church is not in defeat. We have victory through Christ. And therefore, we are like a gathering of people who have victory through Christ, singing our psalms and hymns of victory, despite the all assaults by the devil against our souls. And the world that wants to destroy you and destroy me and destroy every reflection that brings glory to Christ. And yet you're here. You're here. And he prepares a table before us in the presence of his and our enemies. I've often thought about it. You don't sit at a table if you're under assault and you're afraid about what the enemy might do. But the enemy's still there, but Christ's victory is such that we can turn our backs on the enemy, sit at this table in perfect Assurance that we are safe. So these are, these are some of Christ's thoughts to us here. Look at it again. Let's just muse on it momentarily before we close. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning? She's like a dawn. Who is she? Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. This is Christ looking at you. Language like this. Yes, man. I'm going to talk to your wives and say that they're, they're like, they're, look forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun. Strange language. But, but, but helping us to understand the affection that Christ has for us. We don't hear of him looking at all the splendor of heaven and remarking on all those glories. We, we, he, 
hits. It's like the hymn, Emmanuel's land. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. It's the sense that the attention of the church is all on Christ. But where is Christ's attention? It's on us. It's on us. When you have a child who's in great need, what do you do, parent? You pray for them. It's uppermost in your prayers, constantly praying. Because whatever, is, whatever else is going on, this is what you're thinking about. You're thinking about this need that this child of yours has. You ever live to make intercession for them? It's all you can think about. Christ's intercessory work is not purely out of a sense of duty. It's what I have to do. Christ's intercessory work is motivated by his love for us. But we never leave his mind. He's ever bearing us in all our needs before the Father. I'll give the last word to Thomas Watson, a great Puritan. O saints, do but let your thoughts dwell upon the love of Christ, who passed by angels and thought of you, who was wounded that out of his wounds the balm of Gilead might come to heal you, who leaped into the sea of his Father's wrath to save you from drowning. This is our Christ. The same yesterday and today and forever. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Thy Word that is forever settled in heaven. And his manna to the hungry soul. Lord, I can't feed the sheep and I can't feed the lambs. This is really in one sense thy work to do. Take thy word this day. I pray that souls will feast and be satisfied. And as we sit at this table, give us the eye of faith that beholds the lamb. Give us a tenderness in our souls that turns from our sins and wickedness. Deliver us from our unbelief that would live amidst this world in misery and despondency. And grant us victory in our souls, not because we see ourselves as powerful, but because Christ has called us to be an army of saints for His glory, to work witness for his praise and to show forth his name throughout the nations. God help us. Come to us today 
Blessed Spirit of God, lead us. Lead us to behold the Lamb. For we pray in Jesus' name.